This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number two, recorded on February 22nd, 2014. Cyber Frontiers is all about exploring cybersecurity, big data, and the technology shaping the future through an academic perspective. Christian Johnson is a student at the University of Maryland, and I are your hosts. Never on a schedule, but always up to date, we are broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska, and we post the show each week with show notes out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact us via, via email. Just send me an email, uh, Jim, under, or Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can find me on Twitter, at Jay Collison, and now call in our questions. It would be great if you call it in for this show in particular, 402-478-8450, and uh, we'll play that question right on the program. All right, Christian, good to see you again. We've uh, It's been about three weeks since we've done the last show, and uh, I know we've got some good stuff coming up uh, for you. We'll refer folks back to Cyber Frontiers number one, because that's kind of the foundation if you're listening to this for the first time. That's kind of our foundational show and a lot of things what we're going to talk about. But uh, how are you and welcome? Uh, good. It's going to be moving right into show number two and things are going well here. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to the content and, of course, the big question that's been popping up from listeners over the past week. So it's uh, it should be, a, should be a good evening. Good. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. It's you know we, we do run a little bit of a of a issue tonight because many people have asked about the data breach at University of Maryland. Of course, you're a student there. I think you probably owe us a disclaimer before we get things really rolling, so folks know it's what's going on with you. Sure. Yeah. So just to be clear, um, this is going to be my disclaimer for anything said on the show uh, that any opinions regarding this matter are going to be that of my own and not the university's. And any media inquiries related to this incident should be directed to the university's chief of communications officer, um, who can be contacted at crystalb at umd.edu. Very cool. Uh, so tell us, uh, can you can you back or where do you want to start with this? Because I know uh, with with this this subject. I want to make sure you're on track with it. So where do you want to get started? Sure. So, you know, really, it's it's hard to pinpoint what's the best place to start because I think this came rather unexpected for students. Um, I remember Wednesday evening, I was just getting out of classes and had gotten the email with the official statement from the university president um, basically saying that this incident had taken place. And I really think that most students were relatively shocked that this type of email was coming out from an institution uh, like University of Maryland, uh, especially because we work so hard and have invested so much infrastructure in cybersecurity. We've about doubled our division of IT uh, staff, including doubling um, employees who are solely focused on uh, information security and security of systems. So I think this kind of came as a, a disappointment and uh, obviously saddened that this breach happened. Um, but, you know, looking at the disclaimer, or excuse me, the email that was originally sent out by the president that was then publicized um, on the media, uh, the description is as follows. Um, a specific database of records maintained by our division of IT was breached yesterday. That database contains 
309,079 records of faculty, staff, students, and affiliated personnel from the College Park and Shady Grove campuses who have been issued a university ID since 1998. The records include name, social security number, date of birth, and university identification number. No other information was compromised, no financial, academic, health, or contact, uh, meaning phone or address information. Uh, so that was really kind of the initial statement that students got, um, and that email kind of goes on for a bit. And really, it's being characterized as a sophisticated um, breach, meaning that this wasn't this wasn't you know a port that was left open or something that was just neg negligently running on the network to a, a secure system. Um, the person who did this was was good, and I think it's a fair to, it's a fair statement to make that. Um, they would have needed to have a intimate knowledge of how University of Maryland designs and structures its security systems and its IT systems. So, you know, I think it's it's, it's fair it's it's a fair statement that you know although this happened to a university like the University of Maryland, it certainly wasn't your average uh, script kitty attack. Um, that being said, you know this is certainly not the first time that. Um, somewhere like the University of Maryland or other universities, for that matter, have run into this issue. So, um, you know, just just in this past year, um, UNC had a had a breach in, in North Carolina, and they and that was one of those things where they took a system down for maintenance, and a security feature that's supposed to be in place just went offline uh, during that maintenance and never came back online. And for six months, I think there there was a significant number of social security numbers that were publicly available in, in a Google search engine because they had not properly resecured the web portal after maintenance was complete. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that if this if something like this had happened at Maryland, that would be pretty shameful to be honest. But uh, there's really no indication of that at this point, and I think. I think, though, that, you know, all universities really struggle with this problem. And, and why is that? You know, it, a university network in, in architecture is really considerably different from that of a corporate or a government network. And what I mean by that is universities have traditionally, uh, traditionally been a place where, you know, in order for the maximum amount of information exchange and kind of freedom of information and freedom of for the ability to learn uh, for all students, faculty, professors on campus and to promote research, uh, generally speaking, research universities and, and college campuses alike um, have kind of an open internet, which means that each university is more or less its own internet service provider and every student who you know, plugs a computer into a dorm room or is using campus wireless or so forth, you're being issued a public IP address that's accessible from the internet. So what that means is, you know, unlike your typical home network like a Comcast or Verizon Fios where you're going to get issued a public IP that goes to your router and you know, is behind your, your router's firewall and, you know, that IP is most likely a dynamic IP, so it's going to change every now and then. That's really not the case at the university level. You know, as a student, uh, my machine that's plugged into the the jack in our own, in our own uh, dorm room 
has two jacks, and each jack gets assigned a publicly accessible IP, and there's really no restrictions on, you know, restricted ports, which is common for ISPs, um, and, and filtering of, of any kind. Now, yes, there's there's network monitoring, and they check for security and uh, concerns and, and so forth, and all that is in place, but... Uh, you know, freedom of the internet, uh, freedom of the internet, and freedom to kind of you know put what technology and resources you want in your environment on a network. That's kind of been a hallmark characteristic of how um, university IT systems operate. So that, for me, I think is a is a good thing. So you know. I have the ability to put a router in my own room where I can do kind of the same port blocking and security of my own devices. Uh, but what you have to understand is that when there's so many um, different use cases uh, on a in a university environment, you know, there are always being accommodations made into a security plan. Whereas if you work in a corporate or a government environment, you know, there are really only specific functions that are going to happen at that particular place. Um, whereas, you know, you might be doing research on so many different things at a university environment, some of which are very technologically oriented, uh, that really requires uh, having re technology resources that you can be flexible with. And so, you know, when these types of breaches happen, traditionally that is pointed to as saying, well, you know, it's a university, they have all this data going on, but but really the security is still in place despite that kind of open knowledge architecture is the way I like to think about it. Um, in the, in the past, um, and you know, if you're interested, I mean, there's there's history about the university security here, Stanford's. I mean, you can find all sorts of stuff. Um, the thing that I found interesting about this particular breach was that uh, back in 2006, there was a research paper published here by um, the Maryland Cybersecurity Center, which did a full analysis on. Um, our card reader system here and some of the weaknesses in that card reader um, and they had eventually found that you know the card reader had a magnetic strip on it that um, was creating a unique hash with social security numbers and university IDs and there were similar concerns back then that um, the university addressed and revised so you know that might be an area of interest that is, po is very well possible could be related to how this incident happened um, you know, and if you're interested in more information about that, I would encourage you to Google uh, UMD Magnetic Card Reader and you should be able to find the paper and related resources. But it just kind of goes to show you that these are generally evolving things, but that oftentimes there are similar systems, security systems in place at any university that is a function of, you know, the university paying for a third-party uh, security system for card reader where, yeah, they're managing the card reader and stuff, but it's really the hardware and the actual software is a function of the security company that developed that. So you can also oftentimes see that security and data breaches that happen at universities are a result of the hardware that is installed and put into place, which is why whether you're at a university or, or elsewhere, you know, um, when you're designing a network, it's very important to understand what hardware you're actually buying. You know, it's not, it's not buying a router for your home network and saying, oh, I can get on the Internet. You have to kind of look at 
the characteristics of the device and say, you know, what are the risks, what are the characteristics of this device that, you know, may be a security problem. And if you go back and read that paper, you'll see that the Lenel card system, uh, Lenel is the company that built that card reader, you know, eh, there, there are some things security-wise that are not what I would call best practice for implementing a security card system and I think a lot of people have seen that um, but like I said I don't think that's uh, necessarily something that's uncommon so um, we were issued an updated statement from the university a couple days ago and that uh, really the gist of that statement is that the University of Maryland Police Department is working with the US Secret Service on this matter and that additionally uh, the university has partnered with the MITRE Corporation which is a leader in systems engineering uh, that's specializing in cybersecurity to provide additional forensic analysis on how this attack happened um, how to prevent such attacks in the future but what really remains kind of a question for me is are they gonna get the perpetrator that did this and to be honest, I, I think the answer to that is no. Um, clearly, if it was a student or someone who is currently active on the university, they would have had them by now. I mean, you're pretty much, your MAC address, you can spoof, your IP, you can spoof. But generally, if you're hooked into a university resource directly for an extended period of time, very easy to have a, a security trace done back to your device. So I really think that speaks to the fact that there was a level of sophistication and anonymous behavior in this, which really, to me, says that whoever did it knew what they were doing. Uh, and, and regardless of whether or not the the security systems have weaknesses in them, you have to be among the best of the best in terms of um, hacker intellect in order to be able to even leverage weaknesses of that degree where they're so minute um, that you know like I said you have to have an intimate knowledge of software engineering hardware engineering um, but you know there are possibilities that I think can be explored and, and I think that you know folks like MITRE and the US Secret Service are, are gonna know what they're doing to solve that issue so um, Christian, let me let me ask you this question because it always seems like it's the same information that gets out every time, right? It's name, social security number, uh, date of birth, you know, those some employee ID number or whatever. I'll share. We had a data breach at at, at, at our bank recently, and I got a letter from them. But do we need to move? Do you think we need to move beyond the fact that we apps that we actually think that that kind of information is ever going to be private? And what if we made the assumption that? all that information was public and we locked down the ways we allow you know the biggest problem with the people having that information of course is identity theft and, and stealing or creating accounts right do we just need to fix our financial system so that it's locked so even if it is out there because so much of it's out there now right I mean I, I don't think any of that stuff's private so do we need to change the way we do our financial system so that it can be public and it doesn't hurt us yeah, so first off, you bring up an excellent point that I should have mentioned, which is that personally identifiable information, PII, is, like you said, perhaps one of the most common types of breaches where, you know, they get a social number, they get a name, they get a date of birth, but they don't get the actual record, so to speak. They kind of get the, the top layer trim of whatever's in that database. And so what that really says to me is we need to rebuild how we authenticate our identity with companies, with banks, with you know, with anything, and arguably even with the government. I mean, look at how the social security number system works. You're issued 
one number that is, you know, uh, nine digits, and you're only issued it once in your lifetime, and once it's compromised, you can't be issued a new one, and unless you're going to witness protection or something of that nature, and you know, like I said, there's really, to be honest, nine numbers is not all of that. Sophisticated, yeah, right? It's not. I mean, PII should almost stand for public, you know, instead of private. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. all out there. that stuff is out there. So. Sure, and and what's like I said, what's interesting is that we have so many institutions and and so forth that you know, like if I call a phone for a, a bank and they want to verify that I'm accessing the right account, they're going to ask me for my social security number, right? So. Is that really or the best form of it, right, or something right. like that? Yeah. Right. So you know, is that really the best way to be identifying so many people? And and I think the answer is no. Um, I think one thing that's been really successful that we haven't taken advantage of is two-form authentication. Um, so for example, even on my own, you know, personal accounts, I use two-form authentication, like with Google. So I have a password, and then I have a uh, my cellular phone. And when I log into a new system that I've never logged into before, I have to enter my password, but then I also have to enter in a six-digit PIN. And the only way I can get that six-digit PIN is through a text message sent to my phone. So that type of, and I'm not saying that would work at a kind of universal level of identification, but, you know, we're getting into such a technological era where these things are kind of cheap, it's getting very cheap to put in encryption yeah. systems. Yeah. You know, whether it's RSA or something else, you know, when you're born, if you're issued an RSA key token that has those changing digits every 60 seconds, and, you know, when you're eligible for... I mean, you're issued a Social Security number, right? So let's say your Social Security number becomes your PIN, so to speak. And if that social security number is breached, that's fine because they still don't have the hardware token that gives that additional identifying information. So when you go to a bank or when you talk to someone on the phone or so forth and they ask, you know, what is your social security number, you give them the first social security number digits and whatever your your ID card reader. And, you know, that that's that's technology that's so accessible and available today we could even implement it on like a, a phone level where you know a government run site that keeps track of tokens and generates digital tokens that you know you can hook into your phone and so forth so you know there's a lot of ways to add layers of security to PII information that we're not doing right now um, and, and yeah obviously a, a countrywide rollout of something like that certainly isn't an easy engineering feat but it's really not out of the realm of difficulty I would say well, and the U.S. government had a had a hard time rolling out a healthcare program uh, recently. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it is a struggle. It's not easy, uh, f you know, at at the national sure. level. But I just think we've got to think a little bit differently about our our PII and assume that our PII is already public for the, for the most part, and that what kind of what what systems would we create then that would wouldn't matter if that stuff was public, and uh, and I think that needs to be a very open conversation. Uh, your two-form uh, authentication is a great idea, and I, and I think eventually we're going to have to move to something like that where we just assume that uh, that it's already been breached, and we and we're moving forward with something different. Right. Yeah, and you know even 
even looking at some of the databases, I think there's a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, Jeff Bundy in chat mentions, you know, cryptography and what steps uh, would they need to take to encrypt and secure types of PII data. And honestly, I think there's a kind of performance cost analysis that has to be done when you start talking about scale, because once you start talking about millions of records, if there were, if there's a system that you need to interact with across, um, you know, that many number of records, in a traditional kind of uh, relational database, you're looking at joining tables and and relationships, and those are very performance-tuned queries. There's a lot of servers running those, and I'm more or less sure that it would add a lot of cost and a lot of overhead to encrypt all of those records, so that every time an application wanted to speak with the server, it had to encrypt and decrypt, you know, on a token-based mechanism. So I'm not really sure if actually encrypting the bits of the um, the actual data. So, like, should I really encrypt the text of what that first pin is? No, I, I really don't think so. Um, and that's traditionally... You know, again, we have so many systems already in place that store those pins. I would think it would be easier to just add the two-form authentication on the side where, yeah, you have some kind of token architecture that's doing that encryption and decryption. But once you've authenticated that you, in fact, are the user, you know, then you're getting the unencrypted data without, you know, having to encrypt, decrypt, which I think is really the problem when you start talking about, well, let's just encrypt everything. Um, Encryptions can be broken. They're not easy to break. You need a kind of uh, high-powered CPU or you know other resources at your disposal. But um, I think that's a, a good way to analyze and look at what is the cost-benefit of security. And two-factor, I think, is one answer to that. Um, even randomly generated IDs that change over a given period of time that you know your whole identification is that. That's an okay idea in the sense that it would marginally increase the security, but the whole point of two-factor is the fact that you have something that's known to you and something that's random to you, which kind of makes it easier to work with and easier to kind of identify and put in the system. So, you know, I think those are all things that you're seeing. Like, like I said, Google does it for my account. My account's secured with two-form. Um, if you're a server administrator taking advantage of the cloud and uh, Amazon Web Services, you can use two-form um, MFA authentication with, uh, I think it's an Android app, I could be wrong, but um, so, so it's, it's getting pretty popular in, um, in, in the private sector and obviously secure systems use RSA keys and so forth, but in terms of actually culturally getting us to identify who we are all the time using that type of infrastructure. I think that takes some work, um, but I, I think it's doable, and I think the reality of the matter is that we're moving into an age where more and more of our identification of who we are happens virtually. I mean, how many times do you sit, sit, I mean, sit and think about it. You don't really identify who you are in person to someone when doing these types of transactions nearly as much as you would 10 years ago, um, especially considering, you know, 
maybe you go to an airport every once in a while and hand a TSA agent your driver's license and identifying information, but you know, all banking is done online now, all your financial transactions, um, online university students who are getting certifications on the internet. I mean, there's just so many things of our lives that have moved onto the internet, hence the point of this podcast, that we really need to start creating forms of identifying ourselves beyond saying, well, here's what exists in the physical world that I can use to identify myself, because we really should be taking advantage of creating a, a virtual world of identification, which I really think we've taken what we've had publicly and kind of pushed it onto computers, but computers are smarter than that um, and can handle more than you know what we do in, in kind of the real world situation. So I think that's an important distinction to make in talking about this or really any other PII related matter. Before we move off the topic, um, I'll just say I got a letter this in the last two weeks uh, from our from my wife applied for a job, and I won't mention names of companies or things like that. Although I just showed that on the <laughs> on the video, but um, my wife applied for a job back in. Um, Oh, it was sometime last year when we got this email. It says, writing to inform you or writing to alert you that information you provided during an online job application for the name of this company may have been accessed by uh, unauthorized individuals. And then they, they go to say, on December 19th, 2013, we discovered that a retired Internet application that provided job listings and accepted applications for positions was illegally accessed. While we do not have a conclusive evidence that the personal information uh, uh, was taken during this access, the unauthorized users may have obtained information on certain job candidates. And then they go on to say, on discovery of the potential data exposure, the servers involved were promptly secured and additional security measures were established. We were also actively cooperating with law enforcement and their investigation on this incident. Because your personal information, now this is interesting, and I want, I want you to kind of comment on this. It says, because your personal information was potentially involved, we want to provide you with the information to assist you in protecting against the risk of unauthorized credit activity, right? So, because so much of these breaches have to do with people uh, with identity theft and then, of course, opening unauthorized accounts. We'd like to offer you one year of free identity monitoring through First Watch ID, like a, like a LifeLock, one of those kinds of services. In addition, in addition, as additional protection or as additional measure of protection, please also read the disclosure. So you can go through, they give you then a year they're basically buying for they're paying for an additional year of security. Would, Christian, what do you think of those kinds of services that then do credit monitoring? And this is kind of that proactive approach, right? Well, if we're going to assume your information is going to be out there and people can grab it, then we're going to proactively monitor your the you know your credit accounts uh, to make sure they're not being accessed or unauthorized access. Yeah, I mean it seems to be the kind of universal patch-all for when these types of incidents happen. That seems to be kind of the status quo standard response that companies provide when a PII breach happens. Uh, the university is also offering that free one-year credit. I don't remember the company providing it, um, but they're not a hundred. You're not going to cover 100% of the data that was breached in terms of like if someone breaches a particular record is this identity protection service going to catch that and I would say you know it really reduces the risk a lot it doesn't eliminate it though um, and, and so like I said it really seems to be kind of the professional courteous thing to do when a breach like this happens but oftentimes 
a lot of people who are affected by the breach says, really, is this is this all you can do after something like this happened? And that really seems to be kind of the standard response that most people give um, when this happens. So I, I would say they're effective, but it's no kind of guaranteed solution. And a lot of times, you know, your information can get compromised and used without you knowing for months. I had a teacher once that... Um, someone had assumed his identity completely with the government and was filing tax returns under his social security number and he started getting these weird notices and realized well this is and then they they put it together and realized that someone else had gotten his his PII and beyond probably um, so so it's really never a hundred percent guarantee that you know oh we had this PII breach now you can go on credit protection and extend it and you'll be fine it it helps, but it, it's really not a catch-all that that is going to be yeah effective across the board. So. Well, I I found it inter interesting. We're going to try it. I'm going to try out their service, and and I was going to purchase something like a LifeLock anyway, and so I'm going to take it as an opportunity to give it a try, kind of get into that world and see. It, can, it can't hurt, especially if it's free. So. Um, we're going to give that a shot as well. What else do we want to cover around that topic? Anything? You got anything else there? In regards to PIIs, um, not not or the breach. Yeah, just yeah. the breach in general. Yeah, no, I think I think that's about it. Um, okay. There's it's it's still an ongoing investigation, so more things might unsurface, and um, I think we'll just have to kind of wait and see where that where that goes, if anywhere. Cool. What else you got for us? Okay, so this is related to PIIs, but not quite in the same realm of just PIIs. Um, kind of, I'm not really sure. One of the things that we're still working on is what's going to be our ratio of cybersecurity to big data to kind of all the topics in between. So I'm working on it. Bear with me. Um, but one aspect that I really want to keep in this podcast is discussions about privacy um, because it's it's really the merger between big data and cybersecurity and how it applies to you. Um, so I came across an interesting uh, read today on uh, Dark Reading, which if you're not familiar with the site, darkreading.com, it's really a great source for getting all things related to um, security and kind of information uh, corporately. And there was an article posted today by Tim Wilson that uh, there was a vulnerability in an, a dating app. I've never heard of this before, but it's called Tinder. Um, and this exploit actually was able to take full advantage of the GPS on a user's phone who had installed the app on their phone accurate with within 100 feet. So imagine, you know, my name is Lucy and I'm using this dating app and there's this guy I have no idea who he is who opens my profile, knows, knows things about a computer and can now track me within 100 feet. Uh, stalker much? Absolutely. Um, and this this exploit has been open since uh, July 2013, I think, so about six months. And again, a, another one of those things where they originally saw a vulnerability in the application. They thought they had patched it fully. Clearly, they didn't patch it fully because this this unearthed itself and it really gets us into this ongoing discussion about why do we have cybersecurity and why do we have um, so many of these stories coming out and and maybe it's just because I'm in tune with it now and that's what I'm doing here at UMD but it always seems like 
in, in the public eye and public interest, these types of articles have gotten far more popular than what they were a couple of years ago. I mean, you can probably speak to it better because because you haven't been, you know, tuned into stuff like this for the past six months, but have you been noticing this kind of trend where everything, and, and I think it's fair to say that even with um, what happened with Snowden and so forth, all those types of ideas really got pushed into the media more, but let's let's even talk before that. So, you know, a couple of years ago, um, where, where, do you, where did you see, you know, security-related news of information technology and, and how prevalent was it then compared to today? Yeah, no, I definitely think it's on the uptick, and and mass media or the mainstream media is definitely picking up on it more than they ever have, and so we're, we we do see, uh, and I think the what we're seeing, especially around privacy, is more spectacular than it's ever been. Mostly, I think, because of these, right? Because it's cell phones, and because now, like you mentioned with this Tender app, you know, you can drill down to, I mean, you can find somebody on these things with that with that particular breach and that gets pretty serious and so I think it's caught the attention of mainstream media in the sense that the threats are real not that they haven't ever been real but I mean remember those early viruses that were just kinda goofy and then uh, well you might not Christian this was a ways a while ago then Melissa came that the, the very kinda the very first virus that actually did destructive things to your computers and so to go mainstream, and it infected millions of people in, in its wake. And then, then viruses got the attention of people. Before, it was kind of like, eh, you know, maybe not. It's not a big deal. Then it, then it catches their attention. So I definitely think these things are in the mainstream now, although I think mainstream makes a big deal about them because it's sensational, too, in, in, some, you know, in some regards. So I think there's definitely an uptick. Yeah, no, I would agree. And uh, again, I, I like reading this this website just because I have a lot of good stuff related to um, really all things security online. So they they post good stuff. But yeah, I just thought that was bizarre. Um, well, interesting with Tender too that they've made a big deal about that at the Olympics because you know all the athletes are. That's how kind of they're they're hooking up, so to speak, and and so they're using Tender, and it's so it's gotten a, it's gotten a lot of attention over the last uh, three or four weeks, where it may not have before, and that really is the problem too, right? When you have an app that goes viral, it, so we we now have the ability for things to go viral, not just to a million, but to hundreds of millions of people now all at once. And so that audience, uh, the, the potential targets have gotten so big and the payoff is so large for those kinds of breaches that I think it's starting to make more and more financial sense for hackers to do this stuff and to get more serious about it. Yeah, no, I agree. And what also seems interesting is that you know, again, why do we have these cybersecurity issues? It's a software engineering problem. It's a huge software engineering problem. It's, you know, I, I hate to put it in this frame of light because oftentimes it's not the case, but it's like, it's oftentimes just bad development practices that these types of things start to creep up. And I think one aspect is either self-trained developers who don't really who you know who can get their way through code and can make something work but have no idea if it's optimized or no idea what the security implications are of what they just wrote that's that's one problem what i see in these kind of mobile applications far more often though is the quality assurance and testing is always an issue in software development and engineering and 
you know, some of these applications in order to pull off. There's huge teams of developers writing these applications, right? So if you have, let's even say, 10 developers working on any given application, they're all writing their own particular piece of the software. They're all merging to a, a common software repository where they're holding their source code. And, you know, that introduces just, you know, in terms of different skill sets working on different aspects of an application and then all of it having to get merged and quality assuranced and debugged and tested, you know, that introduces a lot of room for security holes. And it, it seems almost as if all of the really popular major applications that are out on the Internet that have gone viral have had security problems because they've gone viral which to me says that almost any application you have out there that does anything meaningful has a security problem. It's just how popular it is and how, how um, attractive it is for a hacker to try and exploit something that it actually gets to a point where, you know, here's your latest vulnerability. Yeah, for sure. No, and, and you know, the, the, the other pro uh, part of the problem is that a lot of these companies are small. And they don't, you know, they're, 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 you know, it's a bunch of guys on the West Coast that are like, hey, let's create this app that does this. The last thing they're, I think, and I'm being, these are broad generalizations, by the way, but I think the last thing they think about is getting that thing security scanned uh, right. inappropriately, right? Because it's, it's expensive, it slows things down, they need time to market, you know, all those pieces. One of the things we do at Gallup. Uh, is every application that goes out, you know, you know, we've got a team of people that scan that stuff and make sure that it's it's not exposing vulnerabilities, it's not, it doesn't have openings in it. We've got guys constantly watching. I mean, data is everything to us, so constantly watching to make sure that uh, that that our our systems are secure that way. I'm not so sure in a startup that if that's happening all the time, you know. Now, oh, sure. Both University of Maryland, the bank that sent me this letter, are not startups, and they still have breaches, right? And the and the the bank I got the letter from, I mean, they're a big bank, so it, you know, I say shame on you for not having the right things in place to make sure those things don't happen. So I, it it is messy. Uh, Paul Brown was saying in chat, you know, we were talking earlier about two 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 factor authentication, and some of these server farms are gigantic in a way that um, although. If it's if it's unsecure, if you have servers that are unsecure enough that someone can find them, shouldn't you be running your own regression security testing against them to yeah. make sure? It's almost like you need like you need to hire a hacker to to just check your stuff. You yeah, know? and we'll actually get to that a little bit okay. later in the show. Yeah, good. So, let's let's cool. let's go ahead and move on. Yeah. So um, before we get off kind of the the privacy topic, um, I want to recommend a site that is just kind of a interesting feed that. If you're an RSS guy and you like having your feeds, this would be a cool thing to point to. Um, hyperbolic, H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-I-C dot C-S dot U-M-D dot E-D-U. Um, that's a, just a really standard status quo WordPress blog that is run by um, one of the research professors here on campus and um, students that are in this area. And what we do is we post um, articles of interest that are related to privacy, security, government, um, liberty, quality of information, etc. 
And so that's actually a really cool place to kind of find uh, relevant things that are really fresh on the internet that um, are making its way into campus conversations. Um, and I, you know, I post there uh, somewhat often. I I, I put the um, the Tinder dating app link in that feed today. So a uh, good place to point your RSS to if you are interested in pulling stuff off. It's really kind of used as just a kind of place to aggregate cool links and articles relevant to these topics. It's not so much a commentary site or anything like that. So um, that's kind of a cool way to digest some of this information that, you know, myself and other people who are in this stuff are going through and reading and filtering content for you, and so to speak. Very cool. We put that out in chat as well. Cool. Um, so with that being said, uh, I'm going to leave privacy there for now, but on uh, next show, Cyber Frontiers Episode 3, um, we're going to have a special guest who is the epitome of all things privacy, software engineering, and cybersecurity on campus, and it uh, should be a really, uh, really cool treat to have him on the show, and he'll have some really insightful things to talk about uh, related to um, you know these topics. So be nice to interview him for a bit, have him talk about what he does here, and that will be our first guest on the show and uh, many more to come. So that's That'll just be dynamite. I'm, I'm yeah. really looking forward to that. That's one of our, I think one of our goals in this is for you to take advantage of some of the contacts you have there on the campus. So yeah, pretty, pretty excited about it. So yeah, we're going to start rolling those guests in and getting some cool conversations going that are really relevant to what, what goes on here. I'll be honest, you guys are going to leave me behind. It'll just glass, <laughs> you know, you'll be talking you know, just to, you know, well, Jim's checked out. <laughs> I, this 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 person's pretty excellent at bringing good. it down to, to to level. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, excited for it. You bet. Cool. So I think the last topic I want to cover that's along the lines of what you were saying earlier is, well, it, it would almost be nice if we had a hacker that we could hire to say what what are our weaknesses, and there there are techniques, so to speak, where you can hire your own hacker. In fact, you can hire the internet to hack. For you on purpose, and that sounds kind of a that that's kind of a, a loaded statement in and of itself. But let me kind of explain. So, um, one of the research projects that is being completed by all Aces students, cybersecurity students here this semester in the honors program, is a project on honeypots. And if you've never heard the term honeypots, a honeypot is a system that, whether it's Windows or Linux or whatever, is design it just runs and sits on your network for the mere purpose of having someone try and get into it so it has no services on it that you care about it is not a production system so it's it's merely a computer and a, a, a IT resource that you're putting on your network to try and lure hackers to to get into it, break into it, and use it. So there is a ton of research that can be done in this area, right? So um, first off, there's two classifications of honeypots that are most common, what we call high interaction and low interaction honeypots. Low interaction honeypots are very easy to deploy. So they typically are only they're not an actual full operating system they're just emulating certain behaviors and activities of popular programs that are targeted so for example a a low powered honeypot would be you know if i 
had some kind of application emulating an FTP server that could respond to basic commands, do you know basic things, but it was nothing more than an FTP server that led to absolutely nowhere if it got cracked. Um, some upsides, like I said, really easy to deploy, really easy to gain information. Um, the obvious downside, though, is that a lot of hackers are very aware that honeypots are a real thing, and so they've gotten pretty good at seeing, you know, oh, this 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 isn't a real FTP server. I am going to leave now. And so the opposite of that spectrum is what we call a high interaction honeypot, where you give them the, the full slice of bacon, right? You have the operating system on there. You're running an SSH connection, an RDP connection. You got some users logged in that are, of course, emulated. Um, and the idea is you you know, you give them the, the whole run of the mill to try and get into the system, right? And the advantages of that is that there is just such a wealth of information you can get. Um, just to kind of give you a couple examples, um, you can monitor, you, you set, what you do is you set up these honeypots to log data to a remote system so that when the hacker hacks into the system, they don't see that you're logging data about, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah happened. So it's very common um, to always log keystrokes, network activity, and you can do all sorts of analysis with the type of data that you can collect on honeypots. Um, the obvious one is by virtue of someone trying to connect to a system that is not designed to do anything, all, all traffic is treated as suspicious because if no one is an authenticated user that is supposed to have access to that box, you can pretty much make the assumption that anything else connecting to it is malicious or a bot of some sort because there's no functional purpose in your organization for someone to be logging into that system. Um, so that's kind of rule number one. Um, but once you get there, you can do all sorts of things like study what are the most commonly used passwords that are trying to be hacked and dictionary attacks. And once the user gets on the system, what do they try and do with it, so forth. And there's a really great um, research paper, I'll try and get it in the show notes, um, called A Night with uh, a Burford. And it's a, this really cool article about someone who got, uh, you know, was running a honeypot and uh, the hacker entered into the system and just kind of a whole description of, you know, what the hacker was doing, what the behaviors were, what the reactions were. And I think that paper was one of the catalyst papers for honeypots. And they're arguably becoming one of the most, uh, maybe not one of the most, but a very effective tool at um, doing cybersecurity in corporate networks because it's a really great tool for security specialists to say, okay, we're getting these IPs and we're getting these types of intrusions to this box that we know are malicious. Now we can put those as a blacklist on our systems that are production and do matter and we're gaining security by putting this bacon out there. Of course, uh, and I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the downside of putting all that bacon out there is that if a hacker does get into it and you're not closely monitoring the box and so forth, you know, there's a very gray area in the sense that yes, it's illegal that they have hacked into your system, but if you as the kind of researcher or corporate member, you're responsible for that box. And so if you know that you've put this box to willingly trap people into it, you have to be responsible for what goes on that box because you know someone is trying to get into it 
uh, all the time. So if a hacker does get in there and then starts, let's say, let's say he uses that box and turns it right around and starts trying to hack the U.S. Air Force with it, well, guess what? You're responsible. So um, there's a big risk-reward kind of benefit, and you have to find that happy medium. Um, there are very good ways to do that, obviously. There's some filtering and techniques you can use and so forth. Obviously, the biggest one is, is just having a alert go to your phone and email that says, hey, someone did hack this honeybot. You should see what they're doing right now. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be uh, staying up 24 hours a day uh, when, you know, the hackers across the other side of the world are, are hitting your box, but um, there are there are ways to kind of mitigate those concerns, and so I would argue that honey, uh, well, high-interaction honeypots are much more frequently used for kind of research purposes and um, intrusion detection systems, in the hope that they help stop some of those advanced persistent threats and other things that, you know, you really don't want. You know, if, if there's an opportunity for a hacker to get to a production system and you can stop them on a system that doesn't matter to you at all, you've just got a lot of intrinsic value out of doing that. So um, not really sure if this is something that we can kind of say, well, let's let's put together a kind of tutorial and guide on how to do a honeypot at home. <laughs> I'm not really sure how many people would be interested in running a honeypot at home, especially because, you know, the average um, person doesn't run a web server from home, doesn't really have ports open for stuff, so it doesn't really make sense in that kind of environment, but I, th I think it would be cool if we could find some application relatable to that. So one example I can think of is there's a project on Google you can Google. I need to also find the URL included in the show notes that's called the HoneyNet Project where they keep track of a list of black blacklisted IPs and saying, you know, okay, this IP was a harvester on this honeypot, this IP was a, a, a spam uh, email system. You know, this IP was a botnet that got in and did whatever. And that database, they build basically an API that you can access that database and already have a lot of that information. So, you know, from an average guy perspective, if you're running a WordPress site or if you're running whatever that's a service of any kind that you're opening up, you might be able to find a way to actually bridge that application or service with a, uh, a online site like the HoneyNet project to actually create a form of blacklisting that's going to protect you from a lot of the nasty stuff that's out there. So um, it's it's interesting when you say when you said you know it would be nice if we could hire hackers because the reality is if you do give something that's an attractive target they will come to you and if you're very kind of clever in how you design your honeypot and again there's so many factors in how you can put a honeypot together that um, this is really a, a I would say there's beginner ways to do honeypots and there's advanced techniques too, right? But you, yeah. you can gain a lot of value in an organization by doing that. And uh, there's a, there's an article in InfoWorld that basically says that if you don't have a honeypot, don't bother calling yourself a security pro at all, which um, I don't know if I fully agree with, but that's really becoming increasingly uh, popular in these types of environments. So if you are kind of really interested in a technical tidbit of cybersecurity, Security. This might be an area we can go down and explore a little bit more and kind of find a, a home user type project of doing a honeypot.
Uh, let me let me mention because I kind of used the honeypot concept a couple years back when I was doing a lot of work for friends and relatives, right? And you, so this is kind of a honeypot, but not in the way you've defined it. But this is the way I thought of it. So um, I was getting a lot of, hey, my computer's broken, or it's slowing down. I don't know how to fix it. Can you, or can you, you know, my laptop's not working. Can you get the data off of it? And you know, sure enough, I would go to pull the data, it would be full of viruses, right? And I'm like, oh, geez, you know. And, and I got to the point, I didn't even want to fire up those those computers on my network. I'd bring them, you know, I always bring them to the house because it's a lot easier to work on them here than it would be to work on them in their location. So I actually built a PC, and its sole purpose, it was off the network. I would plug it in every once in a while, update it, and then then take it off the network again. And its sole purpose was to host hard drives and systems that I brought in the house that I could plug them into, and at least I had a system that I could with, especially like with a hard drive. But I knew that if it got infected, it wasn't the end of the world, right? It wasn't attached to my network. It wouldn't spread throughout the house. And so I used it as, in particular, you know, I'd pull a hard drive over. And it was real helpful. I'd have a, a, a drive bay I could put that hard drive in, and then I'd scan it right away. First thing I'd do is scan, you know not boot up the hard drive to that PC and scan it, but just put it in where it's not running and start scanning it. And, man, I'd find stuff all the time. So that was something, if you're a tech support guy for your family or your relatives or your neighbors or whatever, and, and a lot of the guys that listen to this show are, that was kind of something that saved my bacon a couple times. Now, for whatever reason, over the last year, those support calls for me have died. I, I don't know. Maybe I got to be a jerk. Maybe I charged too much money, which was zero. So I don't know how I could have done that. But Or the PC just isn't. It Maybe with Windows 7, things are just more robust for people and they don't get it as much. The virus control, you know, antivirus is better. I don't know. I'm just not seeing as many family problems as I used to see. But that was how I kind of deployed the honeypot, the honeypot concept internally to make sure that I wasn't getting viruses on our network. Yeah, and, you know, oftentimes, I mean, so when you get someone who says, oh, I think I have a virus, you know, what is it that makes them come to you and say, oh, I think I have a virus? Usually it's slow performance. Right. You know, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll say, hey, it's slowing down. And they don't almost never say that. Nobody wants to admit it, you know. They, it's almost, ooh, I got some slow performance. And I always think, oh, you probably picked up a virus. And um, but those numbers have dro- drastically dropped for me in the last six months to a year. Yeah, and, and it almost makes me wonder one of two things: either a, yes, they are becoming less targeted towards kind of consumer devices, but uh, what I think is more probable is b, uh, cyber criminals are getting a lot smarter at designing um, lower CPU usage. Uh, bots and, and viruses and key loggers and whatever so that, you know, unless a user is actually running a scan or a guard or an active, you know, um, antivirus guard actually picks something up, if it slips through the cracks and is not using hardly any CPU resources and is kind of a clandestine behind-the-scenes thing, well, you know, that that might be a reasonable explanation for why those calls are coming in less because, I mean, the, the viruses I remember from back in, like, the XP days, they would just trash the box. I mean, it would be like, let me just reformat it now because it's uninstalled all of my Windows services. It's, you know, done all this stuff. 
and it's much easier for me to just reformat the box and have to worry about trying to undo all this and not know if I got everything. But I really, you know, like you said, I, I have not seen that a lot. Um, and for the average, for the average user, and I've said this before on the home tech shows that, you know, 90 plus percent of the viruses you're going to get is from going to stupid sites that you probably don't need to be in in the first place. Um, and an easy way to avoid that is the host blocker um, that's put out by MVPS. And that will pretty much block, not only does it transparently make all advertisement of any sort disappear from any and all sites, which is wonderful, um, because guess what? Uh, YouTube ads never load. They just go straight to the video. And, you you know, like I said, it's an adver advertisement-free world when you have the host blocker on. But uh, more importantly when there are those rogue ads and those redirects that you don't want anything a part of, they're going to get completely dropped by the host blocker. So that's a way to kind of stop a large number of the common things that are going to get those types of viruses slipping through with your internet browsing. Yeah. The other thing I like to use, you know, we use OpenDNS, and I have an account through them. We talk about, Rich and I uh, met with Amber Gott uh, about two weeks ago. She's uh, one of the marketing reps for LastPass. And we talked a little bit about that. But I, at the end of the show, we talked about using OpenDNS. They also keep you from, you know, malicious sites are a problem. When you get redirected to a site that's been infected and then you are infected, uh, DNS blocks that out. OpenDNS blocks that automatically. And so you've got an opportunity to stay safe. So I don't, on my home network, I mean, I can't even remember. I, don't, I, I mean, I run antivirus all the time. I can't remember the last time I worried about it, you know, kind of deal. It's As we were talking about this, I'm like, huh. You know, I haven't even thought about that in a while. That used to be a big deal, a yeah. big topic, and uh, I don't think we just worry about it uh, as much as we used to. Much like I think, as we wrap it up here, much like I think we're going to get this financial security thing right. It's Eventually, it's going to be better, right? It, it, it We're going to get there. It may take a while, but I remember 15 years ago when viruses ran rampant, and, and we thought, oh, man, are we ever going to get this under control? It's not completely under control. We still have that problem, but I think it affects a lot less users than it used to. And uh, and and people are people are getting smarter. The software is getting a little bit smarter uh, now. We've got we just have different problems that that uh, that exist. So yeah, Christian, anything else as we wrap this up? We're right at the hour mark. Yeah, no, I think that's that's enough for this show. Uh, the dynamic is going to change a little bit. Shows going forward, I'm really going to start getting some high-profile guests on the show, and they're going to talk about their specific subject matter, and of course, applicable to all the topics that the show covers. Um, so we'll probably run some interviews and some talks with folks for the next few shows before we do another uh, Christian Jim dialogue. I guess yeah, is what you would yeah. call that dialogue yeah. monologue. Yeah, mostly, yeah, mostly you. So um, <laughs> mono dialogue. Yeah. So. So, uh, That's good. I like yeah. it. I always learn something. So, so, so very good. So good. Well, will uh, you? You're if you're listening to this, it's downloaded through the Home Tech um, feed. Then uh, thanks for listening to it. We got a lot of good feedback on the first one that we did, and uh, and so we'll do a few more of these before I take them out of the feed and, and Cyber Frontiers gets its own feed. Christian and I will kick that out, including uh, album art and music coming up here. For now, we're just going to keep it playing because we we want to kind of get a feel for the format going forward. I will let you know if you're listening to this and you're not a regular home tech listener, head out to theaverageguy.tv. Christian's in a lot of those as well, although less lately just because he's been really busy. But uh, go out to theaverageguy.tv, and the home tech feed is over there if you want to listen. We've got kind of a general tech show that we do every Thursday night, 8 p.m. Central. 
We say here, never on a schedule, but always up to date, because we never know when we're going to do this. We throw these together. We thought maybe last night, and then we ended up doing it on Saturday. We want to thank Paul and uh, Jeff for coming out. They joined us live. Tonight, we tweeted out maybe an hour in advance and said, uh, hey, come join us. But we are thankful for those guys doing that. If you have questions, comments, or contributions that you want to get into the show, a question for Christian, you can uh, email us. It's just Jim, or you can email Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Carlson. Uh, Christian is the Wiz BM uh, there uh, over on the, on the tweets. You can call in your questions 402-478-8450. Like Christian said, we'll be back with another Cyber Frontiers. I've got an awesome interview ahead, and so be watching that in the tweets. Christian, great. Have a great uh, have a great evening. And for those watching us live, thanks for coming out. Good night. You too, Jim. Good night, everyone. <laughs>